Thank you for tuning into another episode of Woke. I'm Gil Singletary, the host. And today's episode, Black Wall Street, Generational Wealth, is a composite of episodes that are designed to educate and enlighten. Topics will include financial literacy, investing during a pandemic, how to acquire generational wealth, the marketing blueprint for starting a business, and other essentials for becoming a successful entrepreneur. With me today is Mr. Lorenzo Carswell, CEO of Carswell Connection Consulting, a very knowledgeable and experienced entrepreneur with extensive business, finance, and life experiences. Mr. Lorenzo Carswell, thank you for joining us today. How are you, my friend? Hey, I am doing very well, Gil, and I appreciate you uh, inviting me uh, to this segment of, of Woke. And uh, I'm very excited to be here because there's a lot of uh, miseducation uh, and misinformation that is given out to our community. So thank you again for inviting me uh, to this segment of Woke. And, and again, thank you, Lorenzo. Knowing that you're very busy, you have a very busy calendar. So we appreciate the time that you are spending with us uh, for our audience. Lorenzo, before we get started, I want to set the stage and just take a couple of minutes to sort of give us sort of the direction that we're, we're going to go in this episode. Uh, the reason this, this, this particular series is titled Black Wall Street, Generation of Wealth, is to sort of debunk, if you will, the, the myths out there. And I'm sure you've heard them before uh, about African-Americans and wealth, uh, you know, particularly the notion that African-Americans are inherently financially illiterate. Uh, you know, we've heard all before that African-Americans are, you know, financially irresponsible, African-Americans are lazy and sort of lack drive and motivation. Uh, this notion that black people just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And so I just want to set the set the table for us, if, if you will, before we get started, because there, there are so many statistics out there. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of misinformation out there about uh, finances and about African-Americans. And it's easy to get lost in, into those misbeliefs when you think about some of the current statistics as it relates to African-Americans. And I would like for you to comment on some of this in just a minute. But if I could just read off just a few stats that, that are mind boggling for me even, um, the median household income among African-Americans uh, in 2016 was $35,400, something like that. While the median household income for white Americans was $61,200. Then when we consider the net worth, the disparity increased exponentially. African-Americans reported a household net worth of $17,600 in 2016, with 19% reporting zero or negative net worth. Compare that to households, to white households rather, which reported a net worth of $171,000. Uh, to me, that's just mind boggling. And so, as I said earlier, I, I think it, it's sort of clear why we have these disparities and some of these misconceptions out there. Just any thoughts on that in general? Well, uh, some, some thoughts about that, you know, being with the data that you have uh, just mentioned is very alarming and shocking. And to go along with that, you know, I have some statistics myself. And those statistics are that adults uh, 65 and older spend on the average and in, in retirement income of 46,000, which is closely related to uh, the 35,000 that you've mentioned as far as uh, black households, as far as average income. But the uh, definitely the, the gap, and this is the reason of the segment, 
is to just uh, bring these uh, this misinformation and, and bring facts and objective evidence uh, to uh, our people because uh, we need to prepare ourselves better and prepare our families to create that generational wealth. So the whole focus of this is pretty much uh, coming up with the strategies that are there that are uh, otherwise uh, not accessible to everyday people. Uh, so uh, I have that information and, and uh, that is pretty much unknown to be able to use to close that, that wealth gap. Well, and one thing I, I appreciate too, um, Lorenzo, you know, <laughs> And, and I know, I know it's difficult. I know you live in this world uh, of sort of finance and have your, your, uh, you're in multiple different worlds at the same time. I appreciate you again, taking the efforts as I, I asked in the beginning of this show to speak plain to our audience, because I, I think, you know, one of the things that doesn't happen quite often is when we have different individuals on, on shows like this, or, or you hear them on sometime on CNBC, and you have the, the guests, they're speaking so high over the heads of the audience. And so I, again, I appreciate, one of the things I, I was excited to get you on the show because you have such a great way of taking very complex information and just make it simple. So I just wanna say, I appreciate that. Um, and I could go on forever with, you know, I'm so, sort of a Dave Ramsey fan partly, but I, I don't think it, in large parts that he really understand the daily struggles of, of individuals who are living paycheck to paycheck. And so again, I just wanna, I say all that to say thank you just for who you are and what you're doing in our in the community and taking this very dense information and, and making it very simple and, and, and easy yeah. to digest for, for many. So, so, so transition us a little bit further, uh, Lorenzo. You know, when we talk about financial literacy and all these other things as it relates to African-Americans, you know, it hasn't always been this way. And so, you know, when I was creating this series, a couple of people said, Gil, why are you calling this Black Wall Street? And I said, I think that it's important that we think about African-Americans in the Black community as coming from a place of legacy. And unfortunately, right. I, th I think that legacy has gotten eroded. And so when you think about Black Wall Street, you and I have talked about this before. Yes. Quite often, it, it, you, when people talk about it, they talk about the massacre without talking without talking and, and reflecting on the legacy of a black Black Wall Street, and I and I think that's why it's so important that we preserve again that legacy of Black Wall Street beyond the massacre, because there was so much that happened in such a short amount of time. You know, particularly I think it's important for people to know that that former slaves built a thriving financial enclave similar to what we have now in technology in Silicon Valley. You know, if you, you think about how vast Silicon Valley is for technology. That's what we had. That's what African-Americans had in Tulsa, uh, Black Wall Street. And, and we're talking in 1900s post-Civil War. Um, again, very segregated during those times, segregated by railroad track, to be exact. Um, right. As when you and I discussed, you know, the, the Greenwood Wood District had about, what, 10,000? 10,000. Um, about 10,000 African-Americans that lived in that district. Um, it, and it was it was known as the epicenter of African American business and culture. I, you know, I know you like that period as well, and I know you, I've heard you talk about it. I know you're a professor as well. Um, any thoughts on on Black Wall Street? Again, I think it's so important we preserve the history and the legacy of Black Wall Street. Any right. thoughts on that before I go further? Oh yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, because it's very important for us to uh, know our roots, the background. Uh, so that legacy is very important to understand. Uh, because if they did it way back there, uh, 
you know, I know that we can do it now uh, days as well, but we have to uh, create or develop that mindset, you know, in order to understand uh, what uh, the people doing Black Wall Street did because they had an opportunity uh, to come into uh, the Tulsa area, Tulsa, Oklahoma area, uh, because that was uh, where Greenwood was developed on Indian territory. So dating back to the Civil uh, Civil War, uh, when the slaves were uh, freed, uh, they pretty much joined those tribal communities and was able to form that Greenwood uh, community uh, back in uh, 1906 uh, by a gentleman named uh, O.W. Gurley. Yes, uh, yes, yes. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned him. I want to talk about him later. Yes, yes, t- yes, yes. Uh, he was a wealthy black land landowner from Arkansas. Mm-hmm. But he made his way over to the uh, Indian Territory to participate in what they called the Oklahoma Land Run in uh, 1889. Right. Uh, so uh, to come over and have this this vision, I, I think, was a very amazing of O.W. Gurley uh, to provide the opportunities for uh, blacks among uh, themselves to come together and create uh, wealth because uh, they had all kinds of grocery stores, um, jewelry shops, clothing stores, movie theaters, uh, had their own schools uh, and everything, you know, doctors, lawyers. So that was amazing to come together and the money continued to circulate among the community itself. I I read something once that a dollar would circulate 19 times (laughs) uh, in in the Greenwood district before it would leave out. And I was just totally blown away by that that statistic that fact yeah same here yeah same here because uh that's the the problem today because uh from my observation and this just uh definitely just from my observation and experiences uh and there's nothing wrong with others races coming in and owning uh property and owning stores however as a black community we have to be aware of those things and i talk about emotional intelligence and how that connects uh, to understanding yes. not only ourselves, but- and, and we will talk about emotional intelligence later. Yes, because I, yes. I know you're one of the gurus here across the country as it relates to emotional intelligence. So I promise you, we will get there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> don't, uh, don't, 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 I want to hold it good a little bit. Let me go. yet, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it yet, but I just wanted to include, but that's a basic, uh, you know, for us as a black community to come together and have a black uh, 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 basic understanding of how money works and how it's supposed to circulate. And, and, and staying with Black Wall Street just for a little bit before we transition, could you imagine, because as you've mentioned earlier, many of those um, that migrated to, to the Greenwood District, to Oklahoma, they came, they were Southern sharecroppers that were, were seeking and looking for a better world, looking to escape um, the, the South of Jim Crow. Could you imagine what that must have been like uh, in terms of a feeling of hope to know that you're traveling to a place, as you said earlier, with restaurants, movie theaters, libraries, uh, even their own newspaper. Yes. Uh, could, could you, that, this must have been a utopia for African-Americans at that time to think that you're leaving the, the Jim Crow South where African-Americans couldn't even part, partake in, in any of these things to go into a place where African-Americans are running these things. Like, I can't even imagine that. And I think, again, that's why it's so important that the history of Black Wall Street resurfaces because 
there's all this miscommunication that there's these innate inabilities of African-Americans to manage money and be financially responsible. And so I love the story of Black Wall Street. I wish it was yes. permeated more through mainstream society. Yeah, same here. Likewise, uh, I love uh, talking about Black Wall Street and just uh, history itself and, and understanding it, because, uh, again, you know, if I may add to that, uh, you know, not only did they have their own restaurants and, and so on, but they had their own school systems and post right. office, savings and loan banks. And that's very important because, as I learned in the early 80s, uh, blacks were being uh, discriminated against. Uh, when it came to loans and so forth. So they were being charged higher interest rates and things on homes and cars and, and so on. So just imagine if you were able to keep that uh, money circulating among the black community, that it will be more equity involved uh, rather than uh, going outside of the community and being charged higher interest rates and being uh, discriminated against. Yes. Right. And, and again, you make a lot of uh, valid points in terms of uh, money staying within the black community, but being also being um, better financial stewards of money uh, as well, which, which we'll talk about. And much of that is because of sort of behavior. And, and, and I know that is certainly linked to um, emotional intelligence and, and how our behaviors then impact our choices and, and our impulses and, and, and of that nature. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in, a, in another conversation, we talked about a, a part of, of a previous, of the last episode of Woke that we had when I was talking about the learning brain and versus the, um, the survival brain. You mentioned that that part of that episode resonated with you. And you, you said that your story was sort of quite unique. If we can just sort of shift gears just a little bit so you can just I'd like to hear more about your story because I think you have an American story and I think your past um, is I think many of our uh, of our listeners will find a lot of commonalities in and some of the things that you're saying and how how we free ourselves of um, of some of the financial restraints and and become more fi financially literate so tell us a little bit about your story I, I remember you mentioned something about your your mother and some of those experiences but Tell us a little bit about your journey uh, and sort of how you got to this point. My journey was uh, very interesting. And uh, sometimes we don't know what the future holds for us, uh, you know, because everyday life is a learning experience. So, uh, you know, growing up in, in Tampa in a single parent home with my mom, uh, you know, ended up uh, having to quit her job because of health issues and so on. And, uh, you know, it, it caused us to live uh, very poorly. Uh, because she had to go on welfare and so on. So we couldn't afford a lot of things like our clothes and shoes, uh, you know, because it was more important to provide food for the household, even though that would run out, you know, at the end of the month, having uh, four hungry uh, young boys at the house, you know, so she suffered with diabetes, high blood pressure. And then eventually that led into dementia, where she had several heart attacks uh, along with strokes and eventually passed away in 2012. Uh, so when my mom passed away in 2012, found out that she did not have any insurance. Uh, so by not having insurance, it kind of created a hardship on my brothers and I uh, due to the, the fact that we didn't have the resources. Uh, you know, So by not having the resources, it was pretty challenging for us to 
have my mom a decent burial or and a decent really home going. And I hate to interrupt. When you say didn't have the resources, because I think a lot of our audience are going to re relate to that. What exactly are you referring to? Uh, again, br bring it down for me a little bit. I've, I've asked you a couple. Just give us <laughs> yeah. a raw, if you would. Yeah, yeah. I'm specifically, uh, you know, talking about when I say the lack of resources, uh, the funds, the money uh, to to uh, take care of business the way that we should have for my mom, even though it was her personal responsibility. Uh, I think uh, also if my brothers um, and I were uh, prepared enough to have our own resources as far as, you know, how to save, uh, you know, and had that money already in an area that we could take out, it, it wasn't about saving, just like you were saying in your last segment about uh, the surviving brain. You know, we were taught to survive day by day. And I think uh, the environment that we grow uh, up in or that we're raised in, we sometimes take on the, the, the most of those traits of that environment or of our parents uh, without, you know, having a mind on our own, so to say. So when you say a learning brain, you have to be open to learning new information and researching that information out there uh, and to know where to research this information to find more objective uh, evidence or information about the uh, financial means, um, you know, and and uh, as well as your personal growth, whether that means education, whether that means in finances uh, or health, uh, all of those are important factors of the, of the learning brain. So I think that's a great point uh, that you had in your last segment that really stuck out to me. And I said, wow, I was taught uh, on a surviving brain and, concept. And and, and Lorenzo, for, for, the, for the remainder of this show here, uh, I really want us to focus on uh, sort of zero in on this whole notion of sort of we, we think about generational wealth and what are some of the antecedents, what are some of the underlining um, impediments for uh, for minorities and, and, and what are some of the advantages for, for, for non-minorities and, and I think you know one of the things I want to do is sort of deep. I don't want to say debunk, but really explore and zoom in. You know, one of the things I talked about in that last episode that you just mentioned is this notion of inheritance and how uh, forty-one percent of wealth is is transferred through inheritance, which of course is tax-free. Um, and in that episode as well, you know, I, I talked about a friend who um, had ten thousand dollars of life insurance and that he was, he was so excited about having $10,000 for life insurance. And I remember thinking that for him, that that was a good thing. And then also thinking that for me, the coverage that I had at that time was a good thing, not considering that uh, I had much more uh, liability, uh, financial liability and risk that I was exposing my family to. And that, and that I had to think differently about um, what, about this whole notion of generational wealth and, and transferring of wealth. I had never thought about that before, uh, to be quite frank with you. I had never had a conversation with anyone, even my uh, my financial advisor, about this whole notion of generational wealth. We, we, we've talked about my portfolio, you know, we talked about my investments, but we never talked about generational wealth or we never talked about passing wealth on to my children in, in a meaningful way. Um, and, and so I really want us to, to zoom in on this, this conversation because, you know, you mentioned, you know, when your mother passed, 
you know, you guys had a lack of financial resources and that put you guys in a bond. Well, I can't help but think about some of these new studies that have come out that have shown that when uh, when white Americans, when there is a death, you know, for, well, I always I often say that for black Americans, when there is a death and we have some data that can support this, it's more so a, about a cancellation of death where a, a cancellation, I'm sorry, a cancellation of debt. Where with uh, white Americans, it's a transformation of wealth. And, and uh, when I think about taking the most tragic thing that could happen, and I've had it, I lost my mom uh, just a couple of months ago in May. And I know how tragic that that was for me. And, um, and I can only imagine uh, how that might have been different. And again, uh, it, it, if you know, if I, and we didn't have to worry about burying my mom or anything like that because all that stuff was taken care of. But when I think about some of my other relatives who are not in the, in the same position financially as I am, that transfer of wealth could have could really did a lot for some of my other relatives, my other siblings. And, and so when I think about that, it, 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 you know, it really had me thinking about this learning and, and, and living brain. But to, to set this table for us once again, I, again, I want to briefly talk about um, this study that was recently published that looks at inheritance and among families where at least one parent has a college degree. Um, and the, the differences between black and white families in this study was just illuminating. I, I mean, just illuminating. And so I'm just I'm just going to throw a couple of stats at you from this study. And then once I'm done, I want to I want us to talk about some of the products and some of the uh, the things that you're working in uh, with your with your company and how some of those products that you have might be able to and to be an answer for some of the ills that we receive that we're seeing in the black and brown communities. So to to get back to to that study. Um, it, the studies, again, taking out some of the finer points of the study. Among college-educated Black families, about 13% receive an inheritance of more than $10,000, compared to about 41% of white college-educated families. So if you just stop right there, right, about just 13%, about 13% of African-American families receive an inheritance of $10,000 or more compared to 41% of white families. Then white families that received an inheritance received on average more than $150,000, whereas black families received less than $40,000. So we're talking about, again, this tragic event and this transformation of wealth opposing to this cancellation of debt here quite frequently in the um, uh, African-American community. So think about that difference and how it can impact future growth. And you know, this is why you know, I always say, I don't believe that in the whole notion of you pull, I said this earlier, about you pull yourself up by your bootstrap theory. If this were 100%, you know, I'll give you an example, and I, and I, I promise I'll, I'll stop talking, let you take over for us here. But if this were a 100-yard sprint, right, Black people would be starting 50 yards behind the starting line, and white Americans would be starting 20 yards beyond the starting line. The head start compared to playing from behind is crazy significant. And that's where many in the black and brown communities 
why the bootstrap theory doesn't work because we're playing from behind. If you think about the inheritance right. that we just talked about and, you know, you know, you think about it this way in terms of what might this look like, you know, if you're a college student and you're graduating mm-hmm. and you graduate, most college students graduate with, of course, substantial debt, you know, 40, 50, $60,000. Imagine what that inheritance could do for you. Right. right? If you, right. Uh, you, you're a college student walking out of college with debt. Now, all of a sudden, you can take that inheritance, wipe out your debt and put it down on the house. Exactly. But if you're a minority, you don't have that same that same uh, opportunity. So uh, anyway, I, I want to start. What are your what are your thoughts? And again, I know you have a you have a lot to say in this area. Well, I, I definitely agree with you. And again, uh, it's important for us to have these uh, what I call meaningful conversations, uh, because a lot of times we are so busy that we don't take time out to have these types of conversations. So uh, give kudos to you uh, for uh, providing this platform so so that we can really reach out and inform, educate and empower our people uh, with information that is no no otherwise would be accessible uh, to them. Uh, so, you know, from having, I, I think the whole thing is like you were saying, because I wasn't educated. I, I, I mean, smart guy, honor roll student, uh, but that was academically. But when it came to uh, living that lifestyle, I didn't have that financial literacy. Uh, I, I started off with getting a house at 19. Uh, however, I ended up falling in debt, accepting all of these credit cards and so on, not paying them off, uh, you know, and then ultimately resulting into bad credit, you know. So uh, I think it's, uh, again, a lack of financial literacy in our Black communities uh, because a lot of times uh, throughout the families, as you see, there's a quite uh, difference between the blacks and the white families as far as leaving generational wealth. And uh, that's what I'm so passionate about now is passing on this information that we can uh, provide that opportunity for our younger kids, even starting at 15 days old, uh, to create that general generational wealth uh, instead of waiting until they, they get a career job or something. And then they're 23, 25, 26, 30 years old to even try to start some type of uh, retirement funding. You, you mentioned a fifth that there's a program that someone could be 15 years old, I mean, 15 days old, and enter into, again, you got to break that down for me a little bit. Okay. So uh, with saying that, one of the products that my company, Carswell Connections Consulting provides is, uh, and we, we're uh, definitely uh, partnered with A-rated companies. These companies have been out over 100 years old. Uh, over 100 years. So they they definitely have some uh, great uh, assets and so on. Uh, that way they guarantee you uh, the, the definite uh, upside growth and so on. But these, these uh, particular policies are called Index Universal Life Savings Accounts. Let me say that again, Index Universal Life Savings Accounts. And for short, I will be referring that uh, as as I continue my conversation as an IUL, okay? So the IUL is a universal, it's a flexible account to where it has everything in one. 
I know sometimes uh, families are trying to decide and choose the priorities, their financial priorities between uh, whether uh, they want to put into retirement, whether they want to save for their child's education fund, whether they want to save for a home. So they're trying to do all of these different things and provide a funding for each individual uh, aspect or I say priority. But this particular IUL is, is a uniquely structured insurance policy. Yes, and when I say insurance policy, I mean that you can leverage insurance to provide a residual income for yourself because this policy has not only a death benefit, but it also has a way that part of that premium that you pay is, uh, is put into a, an accumulation fund. So, so let me let, let me make sure I heard you right. So the IUL, this index universal life account, is just the basic structure of it. Basically, it's like it's like uh, it's like an insurance account on steroids, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's a good way. Wow. To, uh, great analogy. <laughs> great okay. analogy because these policies are so powerful. Uh, hardly anyone knows about them. If you ask uh, nine, you, you ask ten people probably uh, nine has never heard of this, but- And, and most minorities possibly maybe, maybe have never heard of them. Right, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes, because uh, this product, again, you don't have to choose that particular individual priority. All of it can be done in one account because again, that one account entails a death benefit along with accumulation account and also include automatic no cost accelerated benefit riders. What does that mean? That means if you get chronically ill, critically ill, or terminally ill, it will kick into a living benefit to where the policy is paid up to 90% of your death benefit. So for example, if you had a $300,000 death benefit, 90% of that would be 270,000 that they will pay out to you immediately after confirmation of whatever uh, illness that you may have. So that will allow definitely to um, be able to transfer some generational wealth as well as not leave debts to your significant other, wife or husband, uh, whomever else, because sometimes those bills carry over to, into other family members um, uh, that will have to pay that debt for you. So instead of uh, once you get that accelerated benefit, um, benefit that 270,000, you have the opportunity to pay off, uh, you know, maybe your, your house. If you have $150,000 left on your house to pay that off or to pay your car off. So this particular product is, is sort of multidimensional, if you will, has several different aspects to it um, in terms of how it's structured, where it has sort of a death, Add, uh, sort of benefit to it, then it has this sort of investment sort of angle to it as well. It just seems very multi, multi, multi-dimensional and very multifaceted. Yes, it is. And that's the beauty of it uh, and the advantage of it, because um, just say, for instance, you have a 401k or 403b or whatever you may have. Uh, it is very challenging if something occurs, very emergency occurs, and you're trying to get money out of that account. And you're, you know, there's so many things uh, that uh, 
these accounts will allow you to do as opposed to a, a 401k or 403b. Uh, for example, if you, if you wanna take money out of your 401k, guess what? You're gonna be penalized if you're not 59 and a half years old, and you're also gonna be taxed on top of that penalty. You may not even have enough money to cover you. What if you only have 100,000 in there? And what the emergency is uh, way beyond that. Uh, so if you have that term, uh, term policy, which uh, is, um, is part of that IUL, if you have a death benefit. So, so that death benefit, as I mentioned before, is turns into a living benefit, but that living benefit will be able to take care of anything that you may be able to have to take care of as opposed to that 401k. You may not even have enough money. Once you're penalized and taxed, then that's taken away uh, from the actual principal that you have in that account, okay? Not only that, but it's, uh, the IUL is also protected by probate, by lawsuit judgments, and so on. So it's fully protected as well as, uh, and you're probably saying, wow, this is too good to be true. And most things that are too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Mm -hmm. However, this is a federally regulated um, policy uh, that is actually an IRS tax code, 7702A. So it is available, but again, like I was telling you, it's not openly accessible uh, to everyone or they don't know about it. So. Uh, a lot of us are misinformed by being on, on these companies. And, and of course, I don't like to degrade or downplay anyone, but I'm just pointing out the facts because I've been in a 403B before. And all I've seen uh, was sometimes it comes up, sometimes it goes down. I didn't understand the up and down arrows. So with this, there's no way to lose money at all in the accumulation of, of your funds that accumulates in this account. And, and again, I, I appreciate the multiple different angles that you provide to this as a professor and as a scholar and and and, and financial uh, sort of whiz and just to be able to bring all of this uh, together. I, I know your students appreciate you having this uh, experiential knowledge that you have. You know, you know, one of the things that going back to that study uh, that I thought was quite interesting is you know one of the things we hear constantly about generational wealth is education. And, and I've always just assumed as well, I guess, which is why for me initially, I thought, well, you know, I've been to college and, and I, you know, I've done quite well for myself, but I never thought again about passing generational wealth. I just assumed that by having all this, my education, that it would just, I guess, automatically transfer and just convert over to money for my, my children and, and descendants. And it's not the case that it's not just education. The researchers stated that the median wealth held by black families with a college degree and student loans by the time um, th that person is 65 years old is about $61,000. So those student loans, right, staying with you. Yes. Right, compared to roughly $422,000 for white families under the same circumstances. And wow. what they identify is that generational wealth, they identify inheritance as being one of the mitigating factors that separated those who, again, have the same academic credentials, same jobs, but again, it was the inheritance that they received over the course of their lifetime that set them apart, that gave them the ability to make those investments, 
uh, that you were just describing and just talking about being able to put funds in an IUL, uh, those types of things, having an advisor, someone like yourself that they can consult with about those things. And again, you just mentioned this, how uh, information and knowledge is power and the absence of it is ignorance. And so I, again, I just cannot say thank you uh, enough, but I, I want to transition us just a tad bit, if you will. And that, this sort of gets to sort of the behavior um, that's around saving and the behavior that's around spending. You know, um, one of the things that unfortunately that we all often see too much uh, more than we would like is GoFundMe pages for individuals when they die. And, and then, yes. you know, when these individuals are alive, these some of these individuals spend you know granularly and and live these you know fabulous lifestyle, but yeah, when they're in their death, we're have you know we're seeing these GoFundMe pages, so it, it makes me question. And I'll turn it over to you in a second. You know, what's their spend behaviors like? What are they doing with their money? Um, and I and I know that there is a lot of there is a linkage to emotional intelligence how we then decide to uh, make decisions in our behaviors about uh, investing money opposing to maybe buying a new pair of Jordans or going and buying, leasing a car or renting cars every other week or whatever it might be. Can you talk a little bit about emotional, um, emotional intelligence? First, perhaps maybe tell us exactly what it is and then maybe how it relates to financial behavior. It's been right. Uh, emotional intelligence. I'm a certified emotional intelligence coach. Um, and uh, when I took this emotional intelligence assessment called EQI 2.0, it really brought some things to my awareness. Uh, I started emotional intelligence back in about 2008, around 2008. Uh, you know, and uh, emotional intelligence, first of all, is being aware of your own emotions and and being and observing others' emotions and how uh, to respond to others' emotions. Okay, so it includes five basic uh, competencies, which is self-perception, self-expression, decision-making, stress management, and understanding various interpersonal skills. Okay, so how does that relate? Emotional intelligence relates to all aspects of our lives because most of the things that we are involved in, we decide by our emotions. Mm. Think about when we're at the store. And I use this all the time with uh, the, the younger teens that I um, usually have emotional intelligence sessions with. And I ask them, I say, I say, uh, most times, why do you, when a new pair of Jordans come out, why do you go get them? They say, because everybody else, my homeboys got them or my homegirls has them. Okay, that's based off of your emotions. You're not being self-aware. What is your self-perception? Self-perception is, is having a perception of oneself or self-esteem or uh, that, that self-image. What is that image that you carry? Do you want to be the showboat or you want to shine uh, uh, and you know very well you don't have the means to get this and you're borrowing to get something so you continue to be in debt, okay? Uh, so when you talk about emotional intelligence, it's about uh, self-expression. How do we portray ourselves? How, what is our personality? Being aware of who we are. What is your self-identity? A lot of times we're lost in our identity of who we actually are, okay? 
So when you take time to analyze yourself and to break down and ask yourself questions, and there is a such thing as self-questioning strategy, <laughs> you know, we use it all the time. For example, I don't know if you've been in this situation, uh, Gil, but I know a lot of people who have, including myself, if you're trying to uh, pay all of your bills and you're trying to say you don't have enough money to pay everything that's, that's owed, okay, that's critical thinking. That's breaking it down and analyzing your situation. That's saying, okay, I don't have enough money to pay the light bill, so let me go ahead and, and now I'm not giving you information to use this because we're trying to get you out of debt. We don't want you in debt, but this is just situation that I'm given as decision-making, which is part of emotional intelligence. We have to make those critical decisions. Okay, I'm going to call the light bill company. I'm going to extend it. They'll give me a two-week extension. So that time, that way I, I have money to pay it on my next uh, check. Okay, but how does that, your question, how does that relate uh, dealing with finances? We have to break it down and say, who is doing the spending in the household? Okay. Not saying that you're pointing someone out, but it's very important to analyze everybody's situation because like myself, I spent a lot on my youngest daughter. She wants this. She wants that. She, you know, so I have to say no at some point because even though I have it in the budget and she knows I make pretty well, that's why she asked. So she's basing it off her emotions, but I, as a father, what do I have to do? I have to recognize that and I have to say, okay, she's taking advantage or she just knows that I got it like that. But just because you have it like that, I have to put that in her particular savings for her generational wealth. Wow. So I, I like how you sort of bridge the connections between those four, those five dimensions and how it then uh, impacts our behavior. Uh, sort of a, as a part and shot and a part discussion, um, in terms of, um, because you've heard the saying, it's, it's, you can't teach an old dog new trick, right? Yes. And if you had to give, uh, if you had to give advice, and if you had to say, if there's one thing that someone could do to change their financial situation around, just one thing and that your partner advice, what would that, what would that one thing be? Well, there's many things <laughs> that I would give. I, I knew you would say that. Things. Yeah, there's, there's many things, and you know me by now. But uh, if I would say one thing is to, again, you ever heard of the saying, how are you going to take care of someone else and you can't take care of yourself? Mm -hmm. So I would advise that person to make sure that yourself is taken care of first. That means understanding how you're spending money, understanding how important is that going to be to put up for the future? Because a lot of us live in the now, today. I want this today. So I would say to definitely become more self-aware. Uh, what is your self-perception of yourself? You know, how do we express ourselves? Am I emotional to where I'm just seeing everything and I'm basing off my emotions because I like that particular item? So take care of yourself first and get yourself in order. And once you create that habit of yourself, then you can transfer into the social realm and make sure that you're continuing because you have created that habit in order to take care of that uh, transfer of generational wealth. 
So I, I got to say this, um, Lorenzo, because I know that this is, I know for you it's hard to separate three Fs, which I've always heard from other people that describe you, uh, faith, family, and finances. I, everyone who I've spoken to about you have said the same thing. If you're talking about Lorenzo, he's talking about three things, faith, finances, or family. So again, we cannot say thank you enough, uh, Lorenzo, for your time. Again, I, I know that you're scheduled. I know that you're very busy. Uh, I like always like to end on sort of, again, what means most to our, our guests. And I, from what I was told, again, faith and, and, and uh, family, you've talked about finance already. Any word of faith that you would like to leave with this group before we uh, part? Yes, always, always. Always have a word uh, of faith and um, th that is, you know, uh, and I'm using one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s quotes where he says that, you know, it's important for us. I'm summarizing and paraphrasing it, but it's, it's, it's important for us to talk about the things that matter or we can might as well say there's no need of life. You know, so I want to uh, be able to uh, empower, like I said before, inform, educate, empower and really encourage you all that if you have a dream, stick to that dream. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise that you cannot do something, okay? Because if you put your mind to it and you stay focused on the prize, you will accomplish that task. All right, looks like we're running out of time. Thank you, Lorenzo, again for joining us. And, and to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Woke. Please leave us a comment and share with a friend. Until the next time, remember, in the darkness, you must be the light. Stay woke. Thank you.